Welcome to today's Huddle Insights podcast with David Campbell and Don Mills. I'm Don Mills. Uh, Today we continue our four-part series on the provincial economies in Atlantic Canada. Last week we took a look at Prince Edward Island and featured an interview with Wade McLaughlin, the former Premier of the province. Uh, We wanted to start with uh, PEI because it really has been the economic star in the region for the last decade or so and uh, try to understand the reasons for that success. Uh, Today we take the other flip side of the coin and take a look at Newfoundland and Labrador, which is uh, a province in some serious financial difficulty. Uh, The collapse of oil prices has contributed to that. Uh, but it is a province that uh, has a structural deficit in its budget, uh, mainly uh, as a result of over-exuberance of spending during the Danny Williams period, uh, in addition to uh, uh, labor force and the civil service service uh, that uh, is beyond uh, the ability of the province to pay for it today. So it's a problem that is serious. Uh, recently, Dame Maura Green released her long-awaited uh, report on what needs to be done to fix the financial situation of the province. It's a it's a uh, pretty blunt assessment of the challenges, uh, with along with uh, a lot of recommendations that are uh, needed to set the um, province on the right course. And of course, uh, David, we saw their New, bu- new budget that was just released this uh, this week, which uh, I think is optimistic, maybe hopefully not too optimistic that they may end up balancing the budget in five years. Uh, frankly, I doubt it. But uh, you look at the budget. What do you think? So it relies an awful lot on the price of oil. So just in the last year, they uh, have seen oil uh, and gas-related royalties rise by over $500 million. Uh, and they're projecting uh, future increases there. Really, it's a, it is a story of oil, and I'm sure we'll talk about that uh, as we move forward. But the price of oil uh, in the budget was set at $64 a barrel. It's already at 71 today. It's projected to go in some, some, some forecasters are saying it'll exceed $80 a barrel, and that will add another several hundred million dollars in surplus revenue. So a lot of you know, Newfoundland and Labrador's challenge has been the price of oil. As you said, when the price was really high, when the money was flowing in, it translated into higher government salaries and a larger uh, public service and public spending. And then when the price collapsed down to 30 or 30 or $35 a barrel, uh, it really hurt, uh, uh, um, hurt the province. And now that it's back up again, it's, it's helping again. But again, looking out now as we look to transition off oil and gas, the big elephant in the room is what does Newfoundland look like, Labrador look like in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years. So they've got a short-term problem. And in the budget documents, they are forecasting almost a balanced budget within five years. I think it's an $88 million deficit in 2025. Uh, but really, I think the challenge now for them is what's that economic foundation moving forward? Exactly. And, you know, I think that if you look at the oil and gas revenues, historically, um, they've misspent the royalties, frankly. They haven't done like other countries like Norway, which I think is the best example of a sovereign fund that they set up to uh, deal with the transition away from oil. They have a lot of money in that fund and the country is actually in terrific shape in, in Norway as a result of that. And one of the recommendations that uh, Green um, put in her report was that any future royalties, 50% of those royalties earned, uh, should be put into a future fund for things like a debt repayment and a transition to a green economy. So one of the things that Newfoundland has to do a better job of is become disciplined in how they take advantage of their oil and gas reserves. Yeah, I agree with that. The, the challenge is always, if you're running a big deficit, and you're putting money aside, some would argue that you're actually coming out behind because you're paying interest on on the debt, even as you're putting money aside. But in an, in an ultra low interest rate environment, uh, I think that dynamic changes somewhat. And I think that recommendation probably makes a lot of sense. Exactly. Now, uh, the Green 
report is um, titled The Big Reset. And as I mentioned, lots of uh, what I would call ground shaking and systemic changes that were recommended to deal with the province's uh, dire fiscal situation. Um, and, uh, you know, here, let's put it in perspective. So one of the things the, the um, report points out is that uh, Newfoundland and Labrador has the highest per capita expenditures and net debt of any province in the country. And uh, that would be good if the, pop- the population was growing, but the population has been shrinking since the last census. So they actually have fewer taxpayers uh, than they did in 2016. It has also had deficits in, get this, 61 of 75, 71 years since Confederation. That, that I was startled by that. It has an aging and shrinking population. Um, there's been some proposals for dead, dyna- uh, dynamic changes to service delivery in the province as a result. Um, and the thing that I was struck by is uh, uh, the Green Report indicated that the total debt load for the province was a staggering $47 billion. And honestly, I don't know how the province can pay that back with only a little over 500,000 people. Do you? No, I, I think not, although a lot of that is tied to the hydro in uh, in Labrador. But I think it's, it, it is problematic number for the province moving forward. Can they even service the debt, right? Pay the interest payments on the debt. If interest rates were to go up to four or five, 6% as they were just 20 years ago, uh, you know, they'd be crumbling under debt servicing costs. So it, it certainly is a challenge. There are some other recommendations, as I mentioned. Uh, uh, they're talking about taking, I, I, I find it hard to believe this number, 25% out of the health budget over a period of years. Uh, they think they're spending way too much money on health, uh, given the outcomes that they have. Um, they're thinking about amalgamating the health uh, authorities into one. Uh, those are all serious and big, uh, big challenges. It remains to be seen if the government will actually, um, you know, follow those recommendations. In fact, the history has been, as you know, that the warning signs and signals of uh, the fiscal situation in Newfoundland and Labrador have been ongoing for a long time. And, and no one's really taken them seriously um, uh, until now. But uh, in our conversation with uh, Kathy Bennett, she feels that the population finally understands the depth of the problem. Now, whether or not they accept the solutions is a different matter, but at least they've acknowledged the problem really in a serious way for the first time. And maybe there'll be some courage from the government to do some of the things that are in the, in the Green Report. But uh, it, it's certainly going to be um, interesting to see what the um, final decisions are. Because the last province to go bankrupt was Alberta, and I think it was 1911. So it's been 110 years since any province actually uh, had to do any kind of debt restructuring or whatever. So it's been a long time, but maybe that is a path that they'll have to follow at some point in the future. I mean, I'm a growth guy. I understand they have to restrain spending, spending growth, and I appreciate everything in that green report. I think it makes a lot of sense. But at the end of the day, I don't think you can shrink your way to greatness. I think Newfoundland and Labrador has to have a growth agenda. We've been talking about immigration I noticed that the province actually has a Department of Immigration, Population, Growth, and Skills. And I don't think New Brunswick or Nova Scotia or PEI has an actual Department of Immigration. So I I don't know. I could be wrong about that. But I mean, at least they've got the labeling right. They've got a real focus on population growth and immigration. They've got a number of industries other than oil and gas, a big mining sector in Labrador. It's a $3 billion export industry if you include smelting. They've got a billion-dollar seafood industry. They've got a growing aquaculture industry. And the IT industry is very interesting. As uh, as you may remember, Verifin, their, their fintech firm, sold to the NASDAQ uh, in the U.S. for about $3 billion Canadian or more than $3 billion Canadian. And that has sent a ripple through the IT industry in St. John's. And there's now lots of startups, lots of interest uh, in IT. So I think they need to be thinking about what are the growth opportunities, even as they look at how do we restrain spending and do a lot of the things mentioned in the Green Report. 
Well, as we've talked about in the past, one of the biggest problems is population. Uh, they have a shrinking population and the oldest population in the country. That's not a good recipe for uh, for the future. Uh, in my opinion, their, uh, their goals on immigration have been too low, inadequate to replace the workforce that will be retiring as a result of the aging of the, of the workforce. Uh, their numbers should be probably triple what they have in their current plan. Uh, I think they now recognize they have a population problem. They, they were just playing with it before. Now they, now they understand it. But they're still losing people, and, and they're losing their own population, which is worrisome. People, and this is a thing that I think a lot of people don't understand, is that the situation is kind of like the collapse of the fishery time, where people didn't see any future in the province. Then they left the province in big numbers. That's happening a little bit right now because it just doesn't look that promising for young people. And that is something that has uh, got to be turned around. They have to retain their population, their young people. Uh, they have to uh, repatriate people, come back to the province with some economic opportunity. And, of course, they have to be a lot more successful at attracting and retaining uh, immigrants. So population is a big, as you mentioned, is a big part of their uh, solution to get, get get beyond the problem that they currently have. Right. So if they, if they keep... S- a culture of cutting and slicing let's hope that doesn't extend into the realm of how do we grow population attract people here and so on but the interesting thing about newfoundland and labradorians is they seem to have a lot more strong ties to their province than maybe other maritimers or maritime canada and what i mean by that is when danny williams announced the last big uh oil and gas project whenever that was a decade ago or more um he said, this is for all Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, those living in the province and those living elsewhere. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it, because I wonder if 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 New Brunswickers or Islanders or Nova Scotians, if they move and live in another province, do they still consider themselves New Brunswicker? Uh, and and there's, it seems to me that Newfoundland and Labradorians, even if they're living in Alberta or elsewhere, they still culturally uh, uh, see themselves as from the rock and, 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 and a citizen of the rock. So I think that cultural, um, those cultural affinities and those cultural ties benefit the province. But now you've got to look at flowing in tens of thousands of people that don't have that cultural affinity and finding ways to retain them in the province. And I think that's going to be a challenge, but we've seen it work or it's in the middle of working. We think it's a grand experiment in Prince Edward Island. Uh, but we've seen with that province that immigrants can come and will stay, and hopefully that that's the model or the roadmap for Newfoundland and Labrador moving forward. Well, the whole question of uh, population diversity is a big one for uh, Newfoundland and Labrador because the last census showed I think they had 2.6% of their population had born were born in another country compared to 22% in Canada overall. They're, they are last in the in the country in terms of uh, having a diversified population and I you know I think it's going to be hard uh, hard to adapt to uh, those changes for them probably more so than almost any other province in the country. I talked to a health research firm a few years ago and they told me Newfoundland and Labrador's population is the least genetically diverse in all of North America and that's why they're good for clinical trials and there was a number of clinical trials going on in the province for that reason because you don't have to uh, uh, factor out other issues as much in terms of uh, genetic diversity. So it is an interesting thing uh, how how that province could bring in tens of thousands of folks from elsewhere in Canada and around the world to bulk, bulk up their workforce and their population in the years ahead when there's not a lot of culture of that and a lot a lot of history of in migration uh, uh, to the province. I don't I haven't looked at the numbers, but certainly going back a hundred years. There hasn't been much immigration at all to, to the Rock. That's right. Now, uh, just uh, before we uh, hear our uh, interview with uh, Kathy, I just wanted to point out a couple of other things that might be of interest to the audience. Another issue that was identified by the report is the province pension liability of nearly $4 billion. And the Green Report has recommended migrating public sector pensions from a defined benefit plan to a defined a contribution plan over over time. This is obviously going to be a big issue for for the unions uh, in in Newfoundland, and uh, a battle for sure. 
but other provinces have uh, made a move in that direction. And, and even the biggest corporations in Canada have done the same thing. So it's not like it's a, a new idea, uh, given the limited growth in, um, in markets uh, for pension funds these days. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I, I'm pretty sure this is a controversial recommendation from Green, is that the, the proposed elimination of NALCOR by merging it, uh, some of its components into NL Hydro and then privatizing Hydro. Uh, what do you think about that recommendation? I don't know how you would privatize a company. Yeah, I guess, are they saying they would separate the Nalcor assets, though? Because nobody is going to buy, nobody's going to pay the book value of new, of the Labrador Hydro assets, the church, lower Churchill Fall assets. They're too, there's too much debt relative to the future cash flow. So either the province would have to assume a big chunk of that debt on their books. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it was like when we tried to sell NB Power a few years ago, it wasn't worth, it wasn't, nobody would pay enough just to cover the debt. Is what right. I'm trying to tell you. And so yeah. I don't think that would happen. So, you know, I think that is an interesting prospect, but they would have to uh, they would have to think about what would they do with the debt. And the other thing is that Nalcor actually takes equity stakes in mining projects. Right. Offshore and even onshore where it required. And you, you wouldn't want to do that with 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 a hydro company. So I don't know what they would do with those other assets. So it's an interesting yeah. Uh, it's an interesting idea, but I wonder how it would work in practice. Well, I think they, they are only thinking about merging some components with NL Hydro. I'm, I'm sure that they will hold on the books the debt because nobody wants to buy that debt. Um, but here's the good news for Newfoundland. Um, they're eventually going to get um, their hydro back from Quebec. That's the only 20 years away or within 20 years. That's going to change. That's going to change the water in the bean, as they say. You know, they'll have the one of the biggest uh, capacities of hydropower in North America. Their big challenge will be getting it to markets, um, and uh, and of course, there's a talk about the, I guess, the Atlantic Loop for energy sharing between Quebec and the Maritime Provinces in the northeastern United States. That's that's probably a topic for another podcast and. I'd like to delve into what that means. But, uh, you know, so there is light at the end of the tunnel for them, and it certainly would contribute to them becoming more of a green economy, don't you think? Absolutely. But that's why they need to be thinking about 2030 and 2040. 2040, I believe, is when that agreement with Quebec ends. But so much of our politics now is the next two or three years, and it would be great to think, to see our politicians across Atlantic Canada looking out 20, 30, 20, 40, thinking about what kind of population growth we need, what kind of industries hold long-term potential and things like that. I think that would be helpful, particularly in the case of Newfoundland and Labrador, because if they do lose oil and gas, which they will eventually, uh, what's there, what's standing in the, in, the, in the waiting room in terms of new economic opportunities? And it is good that this hydro play is going to come on, on stream around 2040, although they will have to wheel a lot of that power through Quebec. So their arch enemy there in Quebec still has uh, still will have a lot to say about how that power gets to market. Now, some of that power will come the other way. That was the whole purpose uh, of Lower Churchill Falls, to build that infrastructure, uh, bringing power down the other way. But there's certainly not enough capacity to bring it all. So a big chunk will still have to flow through Quebec. So we'll see how that goes. But it certainly will be good news, but it's 20 years out. Yeah. Well, 20 years is not that far away, as we all know. With the, we just had the turn of the century 20 years ago, to be clear. That, that seems pretty near. So let's get into the uh, conversation that we had with uh, Kathy Bennett. And she'll answer the question. And the last question that I asked her was this. Is there the political will and sufficient public understanding of the current fiscal changes uh, for the recommendations of the Green Report to be largely adopted, or is the province headed towards bankruptcy and a federal bailout? Let's hear what Kathy has to say. We are pleased to be joined on today's Huddle Insights podcast by Kathy Bennett, a su- successful entrepreneur and former uh, finance minister for Newfoundland and Labrador. Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. 
Well, we've known each other for a bit, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Kathy, you, you've had a very successful business career and recently sold your business. I think your timing looks like it might have been spectacular, given what happened uh, shortly after that sale. Can you tell us a little about how you got into business and built your business over the years? Yeah, I mean, I um, started working in the quick service restaurant uh, business when I was 16 um, and spent about 17 years working for um, uh, a very large operator here in Newfoundland and Labrador and decided that uh, I wanted to be an operator. So I um, went on and approached uh, McDonald's Canada and said, uh, you know, would you consider giving me a small store somewhere in uh, rural Canada? And over the course of a number of years, um, ultimately ended up with an opportunity to do a joint venture uh, partnership with them and then spent the next um, uh, 15 to uh, 20 years building the business uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador and expanding into uh, areas of international recruitment, real estate, uh, industrial construction and fabrication, um, and uh, a day spa that I was a partner in. So we had a chance to grow the, the business and employ a large number of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, and uh, really grateful for the opportunity the community gave myself and my family uh, to have those uh, successful businesses operate here. And, and just uh, to give context, at, at the peak, how many people did you employ in the province? Um, we would have had probably at peak about 350. Um, but I, I always like to say, you know, based on the number of decades I, I was there, um, I probably interacted with about 4,000 employees. Um, so it's it's nice to hear hear back from some of them now who continue to reach out and talk about the early years in the service business. Yes. Um you're now involved uh, in a social enterprise called uh, Task Force um, NL, uh, which I think you were the one who established this organization. What is Task Force NL? Yeah, so we uh, built um, a group of community volunteers uh, last year at the onset of the pandemic uh, to support the healthcare system here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, at first, our priority was sourcing uh, personal protective equipment for frontline healthcare workers. And ultimately, we morphed into manufacturing um, those PPE items. Uh, we continue to manufacture today and, and sell into our um, into the hospital system here and throughout uh, Canada. And now we're looking at what other kind of crit mission critical problems we might be able to solve, um, hoping to focus our energies um, around immigration um, and supporting those new immigrants who choose to uh, live in Newfoundland and Labrador, unlike me, who I was born and bred in Newfoundland and Labrador. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Nothing wrong at all. I think it's an interesting, though, d distinction between, um, you know, the, the, the choice to live here versus uh, the accident of living here. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that um, uh, later on in the podcast. Uh, you're, you're also a founding partner, I believe, of Sandpipers Ventures, uh, which provides venture capital to women entrepreneurs I actually got introduced to this a number of months ago from a friend of mine, Sherry Porter. Uh, can you just uh, tell us how that is going? Yeah, we're really excited. This is a, a unique opportunity for us to, um, the nine original founders, three of us that are GPs now, um, to support uh, women who are inventing uh, creations in Atlantic Canada and are, are founding their own companies. You know, women in the innovation economy are underrepresented financially. Um, only about 2% of venture capital money goes towards women uh, in these uh, these new startup businesses. It's the way of the future. We need these businesses to be successful and we need both genders to be creating inventions. So really excited to be deploying my own capital and, and um, you know exercise whatever talent I might have uh, to support these <laughs> uh, young founders and young entrepreneurs who I think are the, are the future of, of what the, uh, the region is going to look like in, in the next number of years. I'm supposing you already have some deals in place and uh, are, are close to others. Yeah, actually, today we announced um, a, a deal with a company called Genova. Um, I encourage your listeners to check them out on uh, on their website. A fascinating company solving a whole bunch of problems simultaneously, and uh, really excited to be uh, uh, to be part of um, uh, part of their uh, cap table. Uh, it's a great initiative, and congratulations on on being one of the uh, original uh, founders of uh, the fund. Uh, having a busy and successful business career uh, at the time, what motivated you to become involved with politics? 
Well, I mean, I, I think it goes back to a little bit of what I said earlier. You know, we had, uh, my family had been very um, blessed to have successful businesses here in Newfoundland Labrador. Um, I had the opportunity to participate uh, in uh, community organizations such as the St. John's Board of Trade. Uh, there was an environmental group I was involved with, um, had you know come together with a group of community people to build Ronald McDonald House here in Newfoundland Labrador. And all of those activities um, you know, spurred my passion for service. And for me, public service um, was really um, about a, a, a bit of a thank you to the community and saying, look, you know, you've, you've really treated our family well by supporting our businesses. And this is a way that I can give back and hopefully use my talents. Um, at the time, to be frank with you, I thought um, to use my talents to focus on the population issue. Uh, you know, we had seen um, labor shortage really manifest itself significantly in the service industry about a decade ago. And uh, for me, I, I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity for me to take those kind of learnings and bring them into a policy uh, making environment that would help accelerate uh, solutions to uh, population decline in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. So thinking back on your experience, what were the biggest challenges you faced being in government? Um, I think the, you know, some of the biggest challenges was there's definitely a learning curve for, you know, new politicians. Um, you know, the, 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 um, the machinery of government works very differently than the machinery of a business, and it should, because it's not about a profit margin. It's about delivery of, of you know, the services that the public expects. Um, I think the, the political um, um, the party system was something that I had limited uh, experience to uh, prior to that. And uh, that was new learnings, and it was exciting to meet new people and, and get to understand how a party system worked. Um, but, you know, the, the practical challenges that we had to face as soon as we came into office was certainly the, you know, the, the um, drastic increase in the deficit that had happened uh, in the year. Uh, the election was in the fall of 2015, and oil price had plummeted. Uh, for the last six months, 2015. So while there were definitely, you know, kind of the big things I didn't know, um, there was one thing I did know, and that was how fast uh, the revenue had uh, imploded uh, at the end of 2015. And, and now clearly, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is in a financial crisis. It has been for some time. Um, um, you know, you, you talk about 2015, here we are in 2021. <laughs> so it's not a new problem. The Green Report entitled uh, The Big Reset was recently uh, released just a couple of weeks ago. The Blunt Report proposed a number of ground shaking, I guess, and systemic changes to respond to the province's dire financial situation. What was your overall reaction to the content of the Green Report, Kathy? Well, I certainly think the volunteers that worked um, with um, uh, with Moya Green um, tried to come up with um, the biggest list they could possibly come up with, um, and I think those are that's what their mandate was. It was a series of you know put everything that they could on the table. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that all of what's in the Green Report is needed to be executed uh, to solve the problem. Um, but it's good to have all of the um, ideas on the table. And there's other ideas that, you know, have come out in other reports um, since then. Uh, but one good thing about, um, I guess, the conversation that's happening in our province today is that um, I think, you know, whether it's the Green Report um, or the People's Recovery Report or just the, the conversations that are happening in the coffee shops, there's definitely an acceptance of the reality of what's uh, happening in our province. We don't all agree on the solution, but I think we all agree that there's a problem. That's an important starting point, as you know, uh, because uh, uh, you know, as a former finance minister, you were well aware of the province fiscal situation when you had that job. Indeed, during your tenure, I recall that you advocated for many of the changes proposed in the Green Report, if I'm not mistaken. Why do you think there was so much resistance to the changes that you personally advocated when you had the, the job as finance minister, actually from your own party? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a couple of things that happened. Um, you know, prior to 2015, uh, our province had gone through a, a boom 
uh, an economic boom like had never been seen before. Um, you know, some people have described it, you know, in the context, if you had dropped um, three mega projects into the city of Hamilton um, simultaneously, it would have been kind of the equivalent of what happened to Newfoundland and Labrador with three large mega projects. So we were coming off a massive boom um, and the bust came fast with the, with the drop in the oil prices at the, uh, the end of 2015. And I think when we first um, came into office, the reality of what we were facing um, certainly was staring me in the face in the minister's office every single day. Um, you know, I was the one that had to sign, you know, $4 billion worth of new debt we took on that year. I had regular conversations with bond rating agencies almost, you know, weekly. Um, our syndicate, uh, we had, you know, regular conversations with members of our banking syndicate. And I think for me, I probably was on the, on the front line of um, learning and accepting. I think for the rest of the population, including, um, you know, officials in government and including, um, you know, some of my own colleagues, there was a bit of a mourning period, right? We had come off this massive boom. How could it have gotten so bad so fast? And in hindsight now, I think there's a lot of us that could reflect as to why uh, that uh, boom bust uh, was so significant, and there's a, you know there was decisions made that you know I think many of us um, have regrets over now uh, about the boom and the bust period. Um, but the reality is, you still had the had the problem, and um, I you know I used to say there was this kind of grieving process that we were going through as a community, grieving what we thought was going to be uh, to accepting what is actually happening, and that's why I think today we are in a much more mature p- place to be accepting um, as a community what the reality of the circumstances um, that we're faced with. I I do worry, though, um, and we can talk about this. I do worry about the timing. I mean, the pandemic is a different layer of what's happening, you know, what the economic impact is going to be on our province uh, simultaneously as we try to right the ship. And that's why um, I think there's um, an even more sensitive glove that has to, uh, you know, be be used when we're making the changes now. One of the thing, one of my observations, and you know, I I followed Newfoundland for a long time in my career as and being a public uh, policy research guy and uh, stuff. One of the things that I would observe, and it's not unique to uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, is that uh, politicians uh, uh, have a tendency to lack courage in making tough decisions when they should make those tough decisions. And uh, part of the reason uh, that they do is that they, they, when they get elected, they always get elected for the right reasons, to do the right things for the people they represent. But too many then start to take a look at it as a career. And then they make decisions to, in, in, you know, for career purposes, not for the purposes they originally got into politics. You're not, you are not one of those. You got in it and you are going to make the kind of changes that were necessary. You, you, you weren't looking at it as a career. You were looking at it as a mission to give back to the province. And I, I think that probably, it, you know, the resistance you were getting from your own colleagues and the things that you're trying to propose. This is, again, my observation is that they, they just didn't have the courage to do what was needed to be done six years ago. This is six years ago. Here we are. And I think you make some good points that maybe the population now understands and accepts the problem. They might not accept the solutions being proposed, but there is time. There is a, this is the time for action. And I guess, you know, how confident are you in the current government's ability to make some hard decisions? Yeah, I'm, I mean, I think um, I have tremendous confidence that, um, you know, the premier and his senior staff, um, new uh, cabinet ministers, uh, old cabinet ministers who maybe have uh, spent a lot of time now um, seeing the reality of what they've been facing. Um, I think there's a, a, a willingness uh, to address the, the challenges. Um, but one of the things I do worry about uh, is that, you know, this type of change that uh, the government's undertaking requires executive leadership inside the bureaucracy that is uh, focused on change management 
versus, versus focused on status quo. And whether it's Newfoundland and Labrador, whether it's the Maritimes, Canada, the UK, any government in the world, government machinery is built for status quo. It is not built uh, for innovation and um, you know execution in a in a in a rapid way. Um, and you know, I, I come from an industry where you know I remember uh, you know being told you know we don't know what we're going to sell in ten years, but whatever we're going to sell, we're going to sell the most of it. And that was the type of culture around innovation that that really um, you know it made us change um, change management efficient and, and experts. I think inside a, a government bureaucracy, you really need to have leadership inside the, the bureaucracy that will take the mandate of change and help uh, people get excited about the change. Um, you know, so I hear words, and even you know, I talked to somebody today who said, "Yeah, we're all getting ready to make sacrifices." And I mean, I just hope that you know we we think about um, it in terms of you know what can we invest in our province, what can we individually invest in our time, talent, and treasure. Uh, to help the province get through this period, but at the bureaucratic level, those cha- that change management leadership is going to have to be, um, you know, significantly stretched and and developed. And we're not, we don't have time for them to learn and make mistakes over the next five years. We have to have the action now. So it's going to be that's going to be, I think, where the challenge is. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Thanks for raising that. I, I agree with you on that uh, on that point. Uh, Green, among many recommendations, is proposing a fund made up of 50% of royalties uh, from uh, oil and gas industry for future use, such as debt repayment or the transition to a green economy. Can you talk about why this is important to the province and how it differs from the previous use of royalties? Yeah, so I think she referred to it, if if I remember correctly, as the future fund. And um, I referred to it in 2016 as a legacy fund. (laughs) And... (laughs) Um, you know, it's, it, there's Norway referred to it as one thing and Alberta referred to it as another thing. Um, you know, there's a global recognition that if you have revenue from a, de- a depleting asset, that you should carve off a little bit of that for a rainy day. Um, yeah. Most households would, uh, you know, uh, consider having a rainy day fund. And I think in the context of um, oil, minerals, etc., you know, Newfoundland and Labrador, like any other jurisdiction, needs to think about how do we kind of you know get some of that into a rainy day fund? Right now, our rainy day need is to keep our interest uh, costs low. Um, so the rainy day need is to pay down debt. Uh, so I'd be very supportive of that. Um, but I remember at the time when we talked about the legacy fund back in, in fifteen sixteen, you know, reporters would say, "But you you know you've got such a deficit. How can you park some money over to the side?" And I said, well, just like you would, if you're going to park it over to the side to buy a car, you're going to park it over to the side to, you know, buy um, Christmas gifts that you haven't, you know, budgeted for in July and you need to spend in December. It, that's tough for governments to do, right? Because everybody knows that the true revenue, um, what the true revenue number is, um, it takes a really disciplined uh, bureaucratic leadership uh, to get to a point where you can actually. Um, have some type of fund, and I think we're you know a few years away from it. But I like I really like the concept and the idea, and I think it's very needed in in our province. Well, the reason I wanted to bring it up is that this was your one of your ideas back in 2015, and here we are six years later again. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention, and you know, again, studying the expenditures of the province, it was pretty clear that you inherited a, a structural deficit in in. For, for government spending uh, when you got into government, that structural def- deficit is uh, still there and has not been dealt with. Uh, and, and a lot of the recommendations, I think, that the Green Report um, have uh, tried to address that. Uh, you know, spending, uh, I think I looked at the budget for, uh, for Newfoundland, and I believe it's $9 billion this year, if I'm not mistaken, or close to it. You know, that's almost the size of the Nova Scotia budget with twice as many people. You know that's a that's a big that's a big budget for the number of people um, that are currently living in the province. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador um, has the highest uh, per capita expenditures and, and net debt of any province in the country now. I was surprised to learn this that uh, since Confederation of the seventy one years since Confederation, sixty one years have had a um, the province has had deficits. So what? So kind of a bad record. Um, it has a, obviously an aging and shrinking population. 
Green has proposed some dramatic changes to service delivery in the province as a result. In your opinion, what are the most important recommendations in this regard? Um, I mean, I think the um, modernization of, of government and the delivery of services um, is a place where we can uh, we can make operational changes that are essential for two reasons. One is, you know, my 23-year-old son, he doesn't want to work in an office that has a fax machine, right? He wants to work in a place where it's hip and cool, uh, where the technology is contemporary. Um, so if we're going to attract people even to work in the public, uh, public service, we're going to have to think about, you know, what those employees of the future want to work with and what tools we can have. Secondly, um, you know, if we're going to um, talk about an economy that's, you know, being uh, rebuilt in part around uh, technological innovation, um, you know, government has um, um, a, a massive uh, responsibility and accountability to be part of that uh, community change. So everything from, you know, how, uh, how government uh, does driver's licenses to how we do, um, um, you know, online access for uh, citizens. I think that modernization of how um, the, the experience for the citizenry is delivered uh, can be changed. You know, the pandemic's a really uh, excellent example. In 2015, 16, you know, we, um, you know, one of the things I remember from the budget at that time, we made a, sm- a small change um, that required a, a tiny part of Labrador and a very, very important part, Black Tickle. Um, to lose a, uh, you know, a, a physician and a nurse practitioner was going to, uh, you know, be available to the, uh, to the citizens. Um, subsequent to that, um, there was a huge, uh, you know, um, challenge from the community and um, it was agreed to use telemedicine so that the citizens could actually connect with uh, experts here in St. John's at the Health Science Center. And many years uh, after the citizens were actually getting connected to specialists using telemedicine that they would have never had access to uh, in the community uh, dealing with a family physician. So I think the way that we deliver healthcare um, is a really you know good way of of you know saying how can we be innovative. Now on the flip side of that, um, you know you mentioned about um, you know the the age and the geography. You know as much as I love my Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and PEI brethren. Um, you know, like we're the size of Norway here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We've got as much land and as much coast as a whole country. Um, and we only have, you know, 525,000 people. So we are the most rural in service delivery of any uh, province in Canada, except for the, probably the territories. And we have the fastest aging population. So there is going to be more expensive health care per capita in Newfoundland. How much it needs to be more expensive. Uh, depends on the operational execution and the innovation that you bring into the healthcare system. Um, you know, I hope that we'll look at a clinic that's mobile on a bus that, you know, make sure that every single community along the Trans-Canada Highway, um, you know, the bus travels across the highway and delivers, um, you know, primary care service uh, into those communities on, on a bus. Now, that might be way out there, Um but that's the way it's done in other places that have the same type of geographical uh, challenges we have. We just had to be open to some new ideas. And, um, you know, hopefully the pandemic has taught us that now is the time. Just like, you know, we're having this chat on a podcast and, you know, people have gotten used to Zoom. Um, yeah. Change is okay and it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Absolutely. Uh, Green indicated in her report that the province had a total debt load of $47 billion dollars. I was, I was staggered by that amount. I thought it was closer to thirty billion, but I guess with you add in a bunch of other things, including pension mm-hmm. liabilities, it gets up there forty-seven billion dollars. Um, she has proposed a very modest one percent tax increase and a hike in HST from fifteen to sixteen percent, and a bunch of other sort of uh, um, fee increases, that sort of thing. And here's the question: with a you know, declining number of taxpayers. The population uh, in Newfoundland has dropped since the last census, which is really bad news, and aged at the same time. How can the province possibly pay for that debt? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that um, I don't think it's conceivable that in my generation uh, we'll pay off uh, that debt. Um, I think you know the the discussion around what assets to sell. Um, 
is a, a meaningful one. I think, you know, whether or not uh, we all collectively agree on which ones we should prioritize as being the first on the block is, is yet to be determined. But um, I definitely think we need to monetize some of the assets. Um, you know, one that, um, you know, I was advocating for uh, is the, you know, the offshore oil assets yeah. in 15, 16, 17. They may have been worth a little bit more than they're worth uh, today. Um, but those are things that, you know, taxpayers don't need to own. Um, and the citizens need the money to go into the debt uh, or they need the money to go into services. So I, I think there's um, short-term revenue um, uh, advantages we can take by selling some things. But you're right on the tax side. I mean, one of the um, one of the the uh, biggest moral uh, challenges for me, to be frank with you, is when I went into uh, public service to advocate for you know population aggressive population uh, strategies and targets. Um, I knew too well that if you know I didn't have somebody working in my restaurant who wasn't going to be a doctor in 20 years, that doctor wasn't going to be able to pay taxes. You know, we're going to see our workforce in Newfoundland over the next number of years uh, shrink from about 225 to about 160,000. And there's no way that that population uh, can sustain uh, through taxes um, the, 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 the public services that the, the population will need. I don't think they should have to either. I think from a health perspective, if we have the um, oldest population in Canada, then servicing the oldest population in Canada through health transfers um, needs to be addressed. Health transfers, and I, you know, I remember having this conversation um, with then uh, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau um, back when I was in the opposition caucus in 2014. Um, you know, saying that you can't expect a population that's aging to have the same health care as a population that's getting younger. And as such, the health transfers need to be dispersed based on age and geography. Um, hopefully that'll be a, a, a baton that's taken up now as, um, as, as the government tries to rebalance the, 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 um, the agreements with the Federation. Another way, of course, of dealing with that is in growing your population. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And, and uh, uh, you know, most of it is now through immigration. Uh, PEI, uh, you know, uh, that we did last week, has had the fastest population growth in the country, and it's uh, coincidentally or not, has had the fastest GDP growth. <laughs> I don't think that's an accident. And at the same time, the average age of the population is dropping. It's declining because, of course, immigrants tend to be younger with young families and uh, bring down the average age in, the, in a province. So, you know, the population uh, challenge for uh, Newfoundland is is probably maybe it may be its most important challenge, I think, uh, going ahead. And we'll talk about that in a minute um, as we get further on in the, into the podcast. The, the financial challenges for the province have been well known for some time. It seems like the population has uh, not responded to the seriousness of the financial crisis in the past, despite numerous warnings, including when you were, uh, you know, finance minister. I think you just indicated that they may have now at least recognized the problem. Um, do you think that that the Green Report has really done a good enough job educating the populations to the fiscal challenges faced by the province? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that the um, it is the it is the conversation of the day in coffee shops and dinner tables um, around the province, and uh, you know, influencers on social media are are adding more volume to the report. Media is adding more volume. That both you know, private sector, government, um, uh, labor unions are all adding to the conversation. I, I really think people understand. That there's a problem. I think what we still haven't figured out is where are we going to choose to agree to address the problem? And what I um, continue to worry about is the we and me um, kind of uh, situation where um, I'm okay with change as long as it's you're the one that's feeling the change as opposed to me. <laughs> and um, but you know, I, I, I do want to you know call out it's it's really easy to forget. I mean, the public sector unions. Um, you know, did make substantive, substantive concessions um, coming out of the bargaining that, um, 
you know, I was part of in 1617. I was, a, you know, I've, I've you know, had visibility into it because of my role as finance minister. They did make concessions at the end of that negotiation period. And, um, you know, one of the, the big concessions they made was around severance. I think the, um, you know, what we need to continue to do is to have um, really quality negotiations with the, our public sector unions. In Newfoundland, there's about 32 um, you know, different unions that you have to have to negotiate with. In Nova Scotia, I think there's five. Um, it makes it more complex to, to have those negotiations. Um, but I think that, you know, those conversations um, are inevitable and they just need to be, they need to happen at the bargaining table, not in public. Yeah, of course. Uh, I think uh, I think the Green Report has suggested a wage freeze for some period of time, right? Mm-hmm. And that will be a, a bitter pill to swallow. Nobody who works will want a wage freeze, obviously. But you know that's the kind of thing that will take some political courage and 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 some political equity um, to agree to, obviously. So. What what is the wage period that they're talking about? I forget. Um, I'm not sure. I the I'm not sure on the actual uh, timing of the wage freeze. But there's I mean there's another way to get uh, a freezing of wages, um, yes. and that is you know you could do an early retirement. Um, and what I'm yeah. in that case, if you do an early retirement and you bring in new um, uh, uh, employees versus um, you know uh, restricting retire you know people who are close to retirement from. Uh, taking advantage yes. of early retirement, then what happens, you'll lower your overall wage costs. Um, yes. And the other thing I think that the province uh, could do is take a look at, at temporary employees. Last time I checked, it was about 15% of the employee workforce that was temporary, you know, in, in 12 week uh, positions. And while those are periodically needed, uh, there is a bit of a heavy reliance on that in Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's another way of uh, kind of uh, ring fencing um, your labor costs. But, you know, Don, Don, I mentioned earlier about the pandemic. I really am worried about the economic uh, impact in households in Newfoundland post the pandemic. Um, You know, we've seen significant federal support that we're grateful for, uh, you know, pouring into the province. Um, But when that starts to stop, I think, you know, we've got uh, the, the, the impact on women in Newfoundland and Labrador in particular uh, some of the numbers that Doug May posted last week um, around, you know, the impact of of women, for example, in the service industry, in the care industry, uh, they've, you know, jobs have evaporated. Those jobs may never come back. So we are going to see an even deeper uh, impact, I think, economically of the pandemic longer than maybe we're thinking about. Um, so as we kind of rebalance um, and modernize government, I think we have to do it very strategically, recognizing you know, where are the places that we can um, redeploy people, you know, and maybe early retirement is, is uh, you know, a, a more humane way um, of, right. uh, you know, taking care of uh, right-sizing a workforce than, than not hiring young people who are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, another issue identified in the report was the province's pension liability of uh, nearly $4 billion. That's a big number, obviously, for the population. The Green, Green Report had recommended migrating public sector pensions from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan. What are the chances that this recommendation will be accepted by the government, given the likely resistance anticipated by the public sector unions? Yeah, I mean, I think um, both government um, and the, the uh, public sector unions came to an agreement several years ago um, about a hybrid model of a pension program. And as such, the, the pension management now is, is uh, privatized and that is managed uh, jointly uh, by uh, the employer uh, government and the employees, the, the labor unions. Uh, and so, too, is the liability. So the, the both government and the labor, uh, the unions and, and, and workforce own 50 percent of the liability going forward. So to me, um, I think that one's a bit of a stretch, considering that there has been uh, a bit of work uh, done on that in the last, you know, seven, eight, nine years. Um, but one area where there may be an opportunity to make some change, and, and that's in the area of um, uh, uh, the group insurance, 
right? So one of the things we did a lot of work on was has the, has the um, health benefits um, that we offer public sector employees been analyzed? And we found that of that entire, um, uh, there was about a $2 billion uh, liability associated with um, the health plan. You know, there's been some discussion about should we figure out a way to get our public sector uh, retirees into a, a public uh, prescription plan, for example, where we can bargain better uh, collectively for the drugs that we need to buy uh, for our citizens and for our public sector employees, and we can get better bang for our buck. Um, I think that's got some merit, um, but that'll be interesting to see if that's, um, you know, one of the things that isn't, I don't think it's in the Green Report, but it's, it'll be interesting to see if that gets on the radar um, uh, to take a look at. It's a great idea. I didn't see it in the Green Report. It may be there, but I didn't see it. Another, I guess, very controversial recommendation from the Green Report was the proposed elimination of NALCOR by merging some of its components with Newfoundland, Labrador, Hydro, and then privatizing Hydro. What is your opinion about this recommendation? Yeah, so I, um, you know, as you know, and some of your listeners would know, I mean, I sat on the board in NALCOR prior to becoming a, um, a public official, and then I was finance minister at the time when uh, we were, tr you know, trying to figure out what the actual cost of muskrat files were. And, you know, I'll say to you what I said at the, um, the commission, the Muskrat Falls, uh, you know, public inquiry. Um, I think Newfoundland Labrador is too small to have a crown corporation like Nalcor. Um, I don't think it is um, in our best interest to have uh, two groups, um, you know, one, a department and secondly, a crown corporation that have to collaborate. I think, the, I think crown corporations and government bureaucracies don't effectively collaborate. There's a typically resistance, you know, a mandate uh, sometimes gets in the way. So to me, I, I think, you know, government departments should be much more involved in managing these assets and, and making determinations of authorizations and control. When it comes to selling new uh, hydro, um, you know, at this particular point, uh, my response would be, I'd have to see the deal. And what I, what I would worry about is, you know, we as a province, um, you know, we're really proud to be, you know, the David and a David and Goliath. Uh, you know, we always, Newfoundlanders, one thing that you'll say for us is, and I think back to the task force and L days, you know, when we said, you know, gosh, darn it, we're going to make the friggin' PPE here. If, if, you know, we're going to, nobody else makes it, we're going to make it ourselves because there's this tenacity that we think we can solve our own problems all the time. I think in a complex negotiation like selling Newfoundland hydro um, or selling any hydro asset or anything that relates to um, our electricity assets, um, you know, the, the, the playing field is not leveling Canada. You know, the, the federal government, um, you know, definitely does not treat all its sub-sovereigns uh, uh, politically equally. It can't, right? Um, when you're talking about the population of Quebec and Ontario, um, those populations um, are very powerful. Our population is, um, you know, very uh, muted in the context of the entire federation. And while I think the feds will be helpful, I don't think we can expect them to be on our side or anybody's side in a negotiation. So this is the one time if we're going to sell hydroelectricity assets, you know, this is a Wall Street, um, you know, type of activity that needs, um, you know, experts on our side, making sure that if we're going to sign a long-term deal, um, that we don't make a mistake, um, you know, that would be catastrophic to the future of the province. The aging and stagnant uh, population numbers present another challenge for the province, Kathy. That is, you know, a declining in aging labor force, as you already referenced uh, in the, in, earlier in the, in the discussion. The province has a population growth strategy in place, but based on the numbers, um, since the last census, the strategy appears to have failed because the province is losing more population to out-migration again than bringing in, uh, especially through immigration. In your opinion, what does the government need to do to begin growing its population base at a reasonable pace? Yeah, I mean, I think this, um, this one is urgent. Uh, I think it's even more urgent than the deficit problem, to be frank. Um, and we have to activate every single Newfoundlander and Labradorian, um, a bit like uh, immigration uh, champions um, in every single community, in every single household, in every single business, uh, to be welcoming and uh, 
supportive of immigrants. I mean, I think we have a reputation in Newfoundland Labrador of we want to welcome you, you know, come from away. Uh, we're very happy to have you arrive. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, I'm not sure we all dig in for the long haul to support our neighbors and friends who need us. You know, it's one thing for a person to choose to come to Canada because they have a job. It's a whole other thing for their spouse to come and not have community support. So I think we've got to activate. We have to make sure they have jobs and opportunity and then do everything we can to anchor them to um, to the communities that they uh, they choose to live in. So we don't lose them after they get after they get here. Oh, that's a key. That's a key challenge for sure. One of the things that uh, has changed my mind about the whole issue of, you know, build it and they will come or they come and we build it approach. I'm beginning to believe that if we can attract and grow a population uh, in Atlantic Canada, it will actually support economic development uh, in the reverse. You just have to look at what's going on in PEI. They've had a great job creation uh, accompanied by uh, population growth and of course as I mentioned the GDP growth has uh, led the not just the region but the country over the last decade or so so um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of growing the population by one percent a year which means that net growth for the province uh, of Newfoundland has to be around 5,000 people who come and stay and you know the province of course has had some negative uh, growth if you will in the last uh, since the census so it is an urgent issue you know, I, I think I actually don't think the governments took it as serious as they should when the numbers were obvious. And that that goes back quite a long time. So uh, hopefully uh, people get it. And I think the other the other thing that I would say is that for anybody listening is that we, you know, we used to feel that newcomers, you know, took job opportunities away from native born or people who were here. And that is completely false. It's the other way around. They create economic opportunities for everybody. And we need to stop that myth that newcomers or immigrants take people's jobs. They don't. They create jobs for the most part. And the other part that we have missed, and this is really an important part that I'm sure you agree with, is that immigrants bring not just their energy and their hard work and their motivation. They bring their entrepreneurial spirit spirit to our region and this is something that we've actually lacked uh, uh, you know compared to other regions when people come in and and with new ideas and want to do their own business things that's great for for everybody and so that entrepreneurial side of things is is something that people don't uh, I think understand with new people coming to our province they tend to be a little bit more entrepreneurial than people who live in the province and I'm sure you agree with that we are we are violently aligned. <laughs> uh, finally, do you think there is uh, the political will and sufficient sufficient uh, public understanding of the current fiscal challenges and uh, and the need for the changes recommended in the Green Report to be uh, adopted, or is the province headed towards bankruptcy and a federal buy, uh, bailout? And that's a serious question. Yeah. So two two answers. I uh, live with hope and optimism that uh, uh, we can change as a province and we can address these uh, problems collectively. Um, I do think that there's a, uh, a community groundswell of that we need to do something, whether or not it's everything in the Green Report or every, everything in the People's Recovery Report or any of the new ideas that I put on the table today, I don't know. But I do think that there's a, I believe in hope that something's gonna get done. To the second part of your question, I don't think the province will go bankrupt Definitely don't think there's a federal bailout. Um, other provinces have the same, if not bigger problems than we do more acutely because of the pandemic now that we're, uh, you know, in 2021. But I do think the feds, um, you know, potentially putting somebody in the finance department uh, to make sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed and taking away some of the control is a possibility. And that scares me. Right. So I'm going to be very hopeful that we're going to get something done. Um, collectively, because uh, the alternative of losing uh, control of our own uh, decision making uh, is not not one that I want to entertain. Right. Well, Kathy, I really appreciate you taking this time. Uh, your perspective is a really important one in this debate about the fiscal challenges of the province. Uh, 
and, and you provided some new ideas today, which I think are really helpful for the discussion and the debate about what needs to be done in your province. And uh, of course, we're all pulling for our friends in Newfoundland and Labrador to get through this, this issue. And I uh, uh, want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with, uh, with me today. Thanks. Thanks for the opportunity, Don. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.